Well, please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. And we're about to embark on a study of an, uh, another very large passage of Scripture that promises to bless us in great measure. If I were to ask you to boil down the Christian life into one singular purpose, I'm willing to bet that the people in this church would be very unified in the response. After all, we're familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith that appropriately says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy his presence forever. And the scriptures aren't silent when it comes to exalting the doxological purpose for our existence. When we see Psalms like Psalm 150 that says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, glorify the Lord. We see New Testament passages, familiar verse like uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 that calls us whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever it is that you do, do all to the glory of God. And then Revelation 4.11, another well-known verse that says, worthy are you, Lord, to receive. And the very first thing that's listed is glory. And it goes on to explain that this is the very purpose and God's will for why we exist and why we were created. I don't believe there would be many in this church that would disagree with the doxological purpose of our lives. But I do think that if I were to ask a more pointed question, a more specific question as to how we glorify God with our lives, that there would be a vast array of, of answers. Some might propose that we glorify God by our obedience to his commands. Others might say that by loving God and loving our neighbor. Perhaps some might say by walking in fullness of the spirit and growing in our sanctification. There are certainly many answers to that question that are worthy of consideration. Yet if there's one thing that the Lord Jesus Christ continues to teach us in the gospel of Mark, it is the priority to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Our Lord is a man on a mission as it relates to the singular purpose of his life, which of course is going to culminate with his death and resurrection before he sends uh, the disciples out to fulfill the Great Commission. Before the Great Commission, however, there are some prequels, if you will, that will take place. And our study today is going to focus on one such account. Picture it this way. Jesus is a, was a man on a mission to make disciples. The apostles were men on a mission to make disciples. And that's actually the title of our message today. And this connects to us as we are disciples of Christ, fulfilling the great commission to do that very thing, to make disciples. This is the mission that God has ordained specifically for the church to glorify himself. If your heart is born again, God instills within every heart of every believer to make disciples to his glory. What takeaways will this prequel to the great commission have for you and I? How are you doing on your current mission? Are you trusting in God's providence? Are you able to proceed with great confidence? Let's tackle the text together 
And it'll reveal answers to these targeted questions. Matthew 6, starting in verse 7, says this. And Jesus summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Now, before we dive into this passage, I want to connect us, if I can, to the bigger picture of what's taking place. This is another one of those uh, Markin sandwiches in, in, in the passage that we're about to study that extends all the way down to verse 32. And those who were with us during the, the last chapter know that there was an account that included uh, the story of Jairus. And Jairus approached the Lord after the Lord had returned from the other side of the sea, Galilee and was asking him to heal his very sick daughter. And then on the way to, to heal his daughter, a woman with a hemorrhage, of course, interrupted. And the whole point of that passage and what was the substance or the meat of that passage that we needed to see was that it was this woman's faith that was going to serve as an encouragement to Jairus. And then the attention shifted back to him. Well, the same thing's going to take place here in our passage. The attention's going to start out in verses 7 through 13 with the focus being on the apostles. And then in verses 14 through 29, what's going to happen is it's going to zoom in on the fate of John the Baptist. And then it's going to shift back to the apostles in verses 30 through 32. And all this is Mark's record of Jesus growing the apostles forward in discipleship so that they could have a realistic view of what it means to make disciples. The first mission is going to challenge them to trust Jesus and how he's prepared them to minister. Then the focus on John the Baptist provides a sobering picture as it foreshadows their fate and the high cost of following Christ. Then the final lesson comes when they give their report and they see that ministering in the Lord's power is very effective. And all this is tied together. And that's why I plan to do a series on all these verses called Growing Forward in Discipleship. Our passage today will concentrate on three takeaways from the Apostles' Sending Mission that should challenge your ministry readiness and mindset. These these. These verses should hit home for us, and we want to unpack them and zero in on them. And the first takeaway that God has for us is to acknowledge the source for the mission. Look at the beginning of verse 7. It says, And he summoned the twelve, and he began to send them out in pairs. Important to note, this is Christ's mission. And it reflects the discipleship investment that he has made in their lives thus far. And if we look back in the Gospel of Mark, what's taking place here 
Jesus, when he originally called the 12 together for the first time, all 12 together, back in Mark 3, verses 14 through 15, it describes the purpose of why he did that. It says, and he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. So this is a fulfillment of what he said he was going to do, the reason why he was bringing them together. And all of the discipleship that has taken place since that point in time is approximately 18 months that he's used to prepare them. Now, it's possible that they could have been ministering with Jesus, maybe doing some preaching on the side with the Lord as these massive crowds, tens of thousands of people around them. Maybe he did allow them to, to uh, do, do some healing, and, but Scripture doesn't let us know that. What it does tell us is that this is the first time that Jesus is sending them out, and they're going out on their own. Picture a baby bird in a nest that has been fed and nourished, nurtured, strengthened. And what comes? There's a day when that bird must do what? Stand on the edge of, of that nest and must take that step of faith, must make that leap and, and test its wings. You imagine the fear a little bird being so up high in a massive oak to be sent out. It's surreal. Well, technically, the apostles would not be by themselves because verse 7 says that they were sent out in pairs. And this actually reflects the wisdom that's recorded for us in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 and 10, that says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. And that is a, there's great wisdom right there. This, it's a reminder that even within the church body that we need other people, that it's never been God's intention that any man or woman would fly solo on their mission. We need others. We desperately need others. Another big difference with the apostles is that they would also be wielding Christ's authority and power. Look at the end of verse 7. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. It's the Greek word exousia. And in this verse, it means both authority and power. And a principle and a takeaway for us that, and a point of application that we can take away right away is that they weren't going out to do this in their own strength. They would need to acknowledge and re rely upon Christ as the source of their power in order to be effective and to be able to overcome the ultimate form of darkness and depravity, which we've learned in earlier lessons was demon possession, right? Because it, it involved all the aspects of darkness, Satan, demons, the depravity of man, all working together in an unholy trinity, taking possession of a person. It was the ultimate form and expression of darkness. And what power? We saw what man, when they tried to do on their own, right, with the seven sons of Sceva, of the Sceva, how far did that get them, right? <laughs> we remember what happened, those in Acts 19, left them wounded 
and running without their clothes. They would need, need each other and they would need to focus on the power source of their ministry. Much more will be said about the demon casting out aspect under our third point. But for now, we need to make sure that we understand and acknowledge the source for the mission. And how does this translate in fulfillment of us and the Great Commission? Interestingly, Jesus reminds you and I of something important right before he gives us the command to make disciples in Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. It's the same word for authority. Exousia, it's it's power and authority. All power and authority has been given to me. And there it is, a great reminder in the Great Commission that just like the apostles on their first sending mission, that us, on, uh, as we fulfill the Great Commission, right, that we are going to need to acknowledge him as the source of strength, the source of power. As we go out in authority, we are representing him as ambassadors. Amen? It's not our will being done. Jesus Christ taught us. Not my will, but thy will be done. Praying to the Father. It's his will. It's his power. It's his authority. And we need to acknowledge it. It's Christ's power through the gospel that saves. It's Christ's power through his word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies. So how can you and I be certain that we're relying on the source of power? That we're relying on Christ's power? That we're not making disciples in the flesh? Those are fair questions, aren't they? How can we make sure? Well, our second takeaway will help, which is this. Trust in God's providence for the mission. Notice the beginning of verse 8. It says, he instructed them. And I want us to stop there for a minute, and I realize where the context is taking us. It's going to talk about in the verses 8 through 11 that the Lord's going to provide for all their physical needs. But I I want to feature these words if I can. He instructed them. If you and I are going to trust in God's providence for the mission, then we cannot afford to miss the greatest provision that's been given to us. We need to trust in the provision of Christ, to trust in the provision of the gospel, right? We need to recognize how his instruction grew the apostles forward, okay, so that they could fulfill this mission, And you and I also need to recognize how the Lord's discipleship of us is growing us forward in our lives so that we can fulfill our mission. The Lord has literally led by example. He's shown the apostles everything that's going to be required of them. Everything that they're being asked to do, the Lord Jesus Christ has already modeled for them. He's done this specifically by teaching and leading, which is how we define a disciple maker. A disciple, methetes in the Greek, it means to be a follower and a learner. This is not anything new, but if you're joining our church for for the first time, perhaps you might be hearing this for the first time. 
A disciple is a follower and a learner. We're specifically called as a believer to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross daily, and to follow him. We're followers. That truly defines, according to Luke 9.23, we are followers of Christ. And he also commands his disciples to learn from him. Passage was even uh, um, shared by by, uh, June before he sang the song to, to learn from him. He is meek. He is gentle. We need to come to him to learn, according to Matthew 11.29. And being a follower and a learner of Christ is what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. And the purpose of being a disciple is so that we can glorify God, fulfill the great commission by becoming disciple makers. And the Lord grows us forward in our discipleship to become effective spiritual leaders and teachers. This isn't a, this isn't a role that's reserved just for the pastors and elders of the church. This isn't a, a, a role that involves some sort of special giftedness for only a certain number of people in, in, in Christianity. This is a role and a responsibility as God grows every single person forward that they can become an effective spiritual leader and spiritual teacher. Leaders, by living out your example, your Christian lives before others to see, a spiritual teacher, as by example, you also are committed to the word of God and you rely upon it for wisdom and direction and for every good work that you'll ever do. And so far, the apostles have witnessed Jesus lead and teach by example, and he's provided a very realistic picture of the challenges that they're going to face. Is discipleship easy? Is discipleship easy? No. We've gained a sense of that just even, even witnessing the, the Lord's interaction, right? And things that, that come up. And the Lord Jesus Christ just allowed them to see his, how his own people received him in Nazareth. Verse 6 taught us that he was amazed by their unbelief. Dear brother came up to me after the service last week, and he, he asked... And it was a really good question. He said, listen, um, if the Lord is the one who unveils the gospel and he's the one that grants faith, how is it that he can be astonished by their unbelief? Very fair question. And the answer to that question is this. Just as there are different measures and differing degrees of faith, there are differing measures and differing degrees of unbelief. Okay, need to capture that. And what Jesus was ultimately saying when he went to see those in Nazareth was that their unbelief, the degree of their unbelief, the degree of their suppression of the truth of who he was, was was greater, uh, basically he's saying it was, was greater than what he's witnessed in, in a lot of places. It was that intense. I mean, think about it. By this point in time in his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ has been out there. He's, he's seen thousands, tens upon tens of thousands of unbelievers come to him. He's seen them come to him for personal and selfish reasons, to get a healing or for entertainment, to see a miracle, to see something extraordinary happen. 
Maybe it was to come to get free food, right? But there was something different when he went to Nazareth. The people didn't even come out for, for their, their unbelief was such that they didn't even come out for those things. The degree of their unbelief and hardness of heart was absolutely incredible. And it amazed him. It astonished him. And this, of course, helps the apostles be realistic about the unbelief that they might encounter when being sent out. They're probably thinking, man, what's going to happen when I go to my hometown? You know? And they got to get ready for it. And it was a principle that we were encouraged to apply as well. Well, this didn't stop Jesus from his mission And the end of verse 6, which in the Greek really belongs to the passage that we're studying today, it lets us know that he just, what did he do? He kept on going. He kept on teaching, right? He persevered. He endured with unbelief. And that was the focus of last week's message that is connecting us to this week's. And so now the 12 will get their firsthand opportunity to endure the challenges of unbelief. Will they trust in the provision of Christ's instruction? Will they trust in his discipleship that has brought them to this point? Or are they going to yield to a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? Are they going to start doubting and thinking that really there's another more effective way on how people can have their needs met? Will they embrace and intermingle Greek astronomy in philosophy, with the instruction that they've been given? Will they attempt to get their own following and point people to themselves rather than pointing them to Christ? And all of these serve as examples of making disciples in the flesh. They must trust in Christ's provision of a biblical gospel as well as the full counsel of all his words that he has provided. And the same is true for us as believers today. And this is how James, James Edwards expresses it. Uncomprehending and ill-prepared disciples nevertheless typify believers in every age and place who are sent out by the Lord of the harvest. No matter how much exegesis, theology, and counseling one has studied, one is never completely prepared for ministry. A genuine call to ministry always calls us to that for which we are not adequately prepared. It is only in awareness of such that the Christian experiences the presence and promises of Jesus Christ and learns to depend not on human capabilities, but on the one who calls and in the power of the proclamation to authenticate its, uh, itself. And all God's people said amen, right? And 2 Corinthians chapter 3 even reminds us of our own inadequacies, right? Nobody can stand. Nobody's adequate for the ministry on their own. We need to look to the source. We need to trust in his authority and power. We need to trust also in the provision of Christ. And there's a, there's a focus on Christ's instruction and discipleship. And this is the very reason why in our church family, in the, the, the primary discipleship ministry of our church, which is care groups, that we're studying the word of God. We're studying the book of Romans. We're not studying seven habits of highly effective people. 
We're not, we're not reading through chicken soup for the soul. We're not, we're not reading men are from Mars and women are from Venus for, for, just for a reason. We're looking to him. We're looking to his instruction. You know, and with that, I think comes just, and it's worthy of mentioning, that I think that there's this dangerous shift that's taking place within evangelical churches, a shift from uh, the word of God to books written about the word of God. Do we all recognize that? And listen, there's not a person in this room that hasn't been helped by a book. I, I rely upon commentaries each and every week as I prepare messages, as checks, and you know, trying to gain insights, right? But we need to go to the concentrated word of God. We need to focus and, and trust the, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit and the provision of Christ that's within each of our hearts and focus on the word and not go running off to Barnes and Nobles or Amazon to say, oh, I wonder if there's a book about this. We have the book. And if we believe what it says... 2 Peter 1, 3, that it gives us everything pertaining to life and to godliness, you know, of the, of, of, of the divine knowledge, of the excellencies of him. He is the provision. And that all scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3, 16, that it's good for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God can be adequately equipped for every good work. It's there. It's there for us. You don't need to look past it or look through it to some other resource. And again, I, I hope that I've been clear. So if you're reading a book that's been really good right now, you're going through The Excellent Wife or The Exemplary Husband right now, you're saying, oh, I better not read that anymore. That's not what I'm saying, right? I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, let's make sure that we, we trust the, the primary provision that we have, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and his instruction. And to glorify God and to fulfill the mission of making disciples, all of us must trust in the provision of Christ. And we really don't need to worry about much else. How, how do we know? We'll look at the remainder of verse 8 and 9. He instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. Don't even take two cloaks with you. God's got you covered. He'll, he'll provide for, for all of you needs. You know what he's ultimately saying right here? Everything that you need for making disciples, as he's trained them and he's invested them every day for, for months now, he's saying is right here and right here. You got it. And not only that, but I'm also sending you with my authority, with my power to cast out demons. It was all they needed to take with them. And these verses do say that they were allowed to bring four things, a cloak, a belt, sandals, and a staff that would probably ward off any wild animals for protection. They needed clothes, okay? That's all they needed, And you may find this interesting, but this is identical to what the Lord prescribed for the Israelites to take with them in, in the Exodus. 
According to James Edwards, he says, these four items of clothing recall the haste and expectation of the Exodus. They suggest that the mission of the 12 announces something as foundational and revelatory as the Exodus from Egypt, and that the disciples must be as free from encumbrances as were the Israelites to serve their God in a new venture, end quote. Certainly the apostles would need to trust the Lord for the physical provisions that they would have. And in the same faithful way that God provided for Israel, Jesus was encouraging the apostles to trust completely in the Lord for all their physical needs as well. And the same is going to be said of their lodging. We see the example in verses 10 and 11. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Why would they shake the dust off of their feet? It was symbolic. It was symbolic and it was letting the people know that they recognized that they were rejecting the Lord and rejecting the good news, rejecting the gospel. That's the purpose. They were shaking off the, the dust of their feet, their feet. And this wasn't a slap in the face. This wasn't meant to um, have a damning um, uh, effect on them. It wasn't, it, you know what it was? It was to encourage and incite repentance. You need it, right? They were trying to communicate that you're, you're not listening. You're, you, don't, you don't get it. And that would be the last thing that they would see. Listen, we, we don't have fellowship. We, there is no connection here. You've rejected that which you need the most. And this is not the modern expression that you and I use today when the gospel is rejected. Can you imagine if we were at our neighbor's house and things aren't going so well spiritually in the gospel conversation and we get up and we just shake off our feet at their doors and, you know, Say, by the way, your floors are dirty and you need to clean your house. <laughs> that would get us really far, wouldn't it? That, that would be a, a real blessing. The principle that we need to apply in our evangelism today that is often forgotten is to warn those who reject the gospel in a loving way that God's judgment is still upon them, that God's judgment is coming we need to let them know in a spirit of love and in a spirit of grace that they are drowning in the sea of their sin. They are drowning in the sea of God's judgment. And they are rejecting the very helping hand that, that is trying to rescue them, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the gospel. And this brings us to our third and final takeaway if we acknowledge the source for the mission and trust in God's providence for the mission, then this allows you and I to proceed in confidence with the mission. Confidence can be bolstered when the mission is executed according to God's method, God's message, and God's authentication. Let's start with the method. Look at the beginning of verse 12. It says, they went out and preached. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ has been doing in their midst for months now, preaching and teaching every day. 
And now they're being sent out to do the same. And the word translated preach is keruso in the, in the Greek, and it's a strong, robust word. It's a proclamation. It's a herald. It's to announce publicly. And this mission was going to involve proclamation. It was going to involve public evangelism at the synagogue and in the marketplace. It wasn't going to be some private event. What would they proclaim? And this takes us to the message, also included in verse 12, when it says they preach that all people should repent. And we lose sight of this, especially in our gospel distorted culture in evangelicalism today that at the very heart and center of the gospel is biblical repentance. It's not a popular message to, to share with somebody that they need to seek God for forgiveness of their sin and turn from their sinful way of living. And the primary sin, I've shared this in the, in the past because sometimes we can get uh, caught up in, in trying to instruct somebody about the, the sins that we see manifest in their life and addressing those when the primary sin that must be repented of is the sin of unbelief. They must turn from their unbelief. It must be repented of and all people must turn and trust completely in Christ by faith. It's the Greek word metanoeo, which literally means to change your mind. So the, the call, the, the gospel call of repentance is a call for everyone to change their mind about the Lord Jesus Christ. Change the, the mistaken view that you have about the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, God working according to his will in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, allowing that to take place so that they can have a renewed heart, a renewed mind, and, and be able to see Christ for who he is. Both the method and the method, message work harmoniously together as the gospel is preached. Have you ever preached the gospel to someone? Have you ever preached the gospel to someone? Here's a, here's a helpful picture for you. You wake up 3 a.m. in the morning. There's a flicker of light outside your bedroom window that's coming in that captures your attention. You go to look out that window and you see your neighbor's house that's on fire. And you can't believe it. And so you, you run outside, you stand be, before the house, you know that he and his wife and his kids are inside, and so you go over to the bedroom window, and you knock on the window lightly so as not to disturb him. You, 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 you try to wake him up so as not to offend him. on fire. Psst. Psst. You're, you're going to burn. 
You're, you're, you're dying. Psst. What? Is that, is that how we do it? Is that how you do it? No. There's, there's passion. There's urgency. There's conviction. You go out there and you bang on that window and you say, wake up. Wake up. Your house is in fire. You need to get out. You're perishing. Right? There's urgency with it. And that's what needs to come to mind when you preach the gospel. That there's urgency with that message. As we look around and we see, and it's not games. There are people who are this close to hell. Like sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards' sermon, that they're just hanging by a thread And they are this close, just as the thief on the cross was, right next to the Lord Jesus Christ, about to taste the eternal flame of God's judgment. And guess what? You, you believer, you have, you have what they need. You have the means for them to be rescued. Will you cry out? Will you preach the gospel? Pastor Jack Hughes says, don't stand before them like the Arctic River frozen over at the mouth. Tell them about Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. Preach to them the word of life that they might escape the eternal lake of fire. Preach the gospel with passion, conviction, and urgency. Again, There appears to be another paradigm shift in our evangelism culture today. So much emphasis on seeker sensitivity. So much emphasis on building relationships before sharing the gospel. Now this isn't to say that in your workplace, within your families, at school, or another setting where there's an existing relationship you know, not to use that platform or that relationship as an inroads for the gospel. Of course, we want to do that. What I'm saying is there seems to be this growing false assumption that somehow there needs to be well-established relationships in place with someone before you can share the gospel. And I think we need to be careful there. Let me say it that way. I think that building relationships and being faithful and preaching the gospel, they're both important, okay? But I do see some concerns when so much priority is put on the relationship before the gospel rather than the gospel providing the platform for the relationship. That's what I'm saying. And and that's that's what I think we see in the biblical precedent as they went out. The time was short. It was an urgent message. They got to it didn't mean they didn't introduce themselves and say, hi, I'm the Apostle Paul, and nice to meet you, and I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, and um, I do have a little bit of a ministry background. But it also didn't mean that they needed to go on a fishing trip and spend a weekend together before the opportunity could be opened up. I mean, it's impossible sometimes, right? When you're on a flight, when you're flying somewhere, when you're at the post office, when you're having a conversation in Costco or wherever you might have a chance to witness and share a gospel track with somebody, share your testimony with them. 
And I think, after the message that we heard last week, that it's even possible that the closer that we are in relationship, the more difficult that it could potentially be to share the gospel when we see what Jesus witnessed and experienced in his hometown with his own family. And I do have a really good point of application for you. If you're a note taker, you'll want to write it down because I think it it helps just to see it. I need to preach the gospel. That's what you need to tell your heart. I need to preach the gospel because when you preach it, you, you, you proclaim it, you herald it, it, allows you the, your, your, it shines the spotlight of your convictions and your faith through the message. And people need to know that you really believe what you believe as you're sharing it with them. Listen, if unbelievers you know are going to go to hell, at least make them wade through the pool of your tears and the faithfulness that you're going to have to preach the gospel on their way. Make no mistake about it. I had a rough week. My mom was in the hospital. She went in the hospital on Monday. She's got emphysema. She's got Parkinson's. She's in her mid-70s. I'm the youngest of the eight kids. And... It's so interesting because Victoria and I have had conversations because we really don't know where she's at spiritually. Raised Catholic, had clear gospel conversations with her in the past, but really no idea on on response. What's her response? Does she believe? Does she trust completely in Christ? Or does it Christ plus something, which equals nothing, right? And here I am studying this passage, and I picked up the phone, and I called my mom. And I said, Mom... We're dying. All of us are dying. And it's just a matter of time. And I need to know. I need to know. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have you asked him for forgiveness? And are you not putting your faith in your Catholicism or good works or anything that you've done, but you fully believe in him? And she affirmed that she did. But you want to know what? What was I waiting for? What are you waiting for? Some of you have aging parents, grandparents in our church family. And and tomorrow is not promised. It isn't. It is not promised. And there needs to be a sense of urgency. Let's not be left guessing about the response. Well, I'm just going to trust it to the Lord. Maybe... They did. No, just preach it. Share with them through tears and through exhortations that you need to know what they believe. And if they don't believe, at least you know where they're at, right? At least you know how to pray. At least you know how to move forward. And the truth is that we get so absorbed with all the other things of life, don't we? We get so entrenched with all the other things that blur and distort our reality that there are tens of thousands of people around us, our neighbors that are, are, are fanning the flames of hell. We need to be sensitive to the reality of those who are perishing. And how do we cultivate greater sensitivity? Let me tell you. 
We're doing it right now. As a church family, what are we doing? We're looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're studying him. We're seeing his priority of preaching the gospel, of making disciples. We're looking to the one who, who didn't get caught up with any other thing. Did he take some breaks? Yes. We're going to see that down in verses 30 and 32. You'll see the, the, the response after they come back from their mission. We need to prayerfully steward our days to make them count just as he did. And this is what's going to help us be confident in the method. This is what's going to help us be confident in the message. And it's also going to help us be confident in the authentication. Our, our, our final verse, verse 13 says, And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Just as Jesus did, their message was authenticated by the miracles and the power that they possessed in Jesus' name. And these were sign gifts that were specific to the apostolic ministry. The apostles were a specific group of disciples. Sent ones is what it means. They were sent out directly by the Lord Jesus Christ so that the church could be established and that the message could be authenticated. Question for you, does the church exist today? It does. Is there any concern about the authenticity of the church today? There's not. It's real. It cannot be stopped. God is growing it forward. And that, my friends, is a reason why we don't see a need for the apostolic gifts anymore. It's established. Now, it also needs to be said that believers today, that you could, it is possible to, that someone could encounter someone that's demon-possessed. And you do have everything that you need as it relates to the gospel. And, and, and we never got to that lesson, that lost lesson on demons and demonology that we'll get to someday. But in that lesson, I teach on the fact that it's impossible for a believer to be possessed. It's impossible. And that should make the priority of preaching the gospel that much greater. Not only did the apostles cast out demons, but they healed sicknesses and diseases as well. And again, all of this was to authenticate the message that was being preached. And in our time, the gospel is authenticated by the scriptures and the re reliability of the, of the accounts that are recorded for us. The church is well established. And again, this is why the apostolic gifts are no longer needed. Practically, the message of the gospel is also authenticated as we, we witness its power to transform lives. As we see it on display, as it, as it heals broken marriages and broken relationships, as it restores and reconciles, as people get rescued from lifelong and enduring battles with sinful lusts and evil desires. We see the world overcome by the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit and all authenticate the power of Christ through the gospel. But can I share just one more thing? One more thing. Perhaps what might be the greatest testimony, and I know I'm over time and you guys are so gracious when I do this, but what might be the greatest testimony is the true believers that are proclaiming and heralding the message that saved them and transformed their lives and who are committed to making disciples. That authenticates the message. It is faithful Christians 
preaching that message. And this is what God has chosen as the primary means to authenticate the mission he has for his church and to glorify himself. This is also why we see that it's a ministry pillar of our church to continue to progress in evangelism and discipleship. It's why we have the primary ministry of uh, of discipleship in our care groups, a place where transparency and accountability and prayer and progress can be cultivated. Maybe the thought of making disciples frightens you. Maybe you, you, you've been at Cornerstone for a while and you're not even in a care group. Maybe you're in a care group and as far as connections with people you've made, you've never really truly opened up and invested in somebody in a discipleship relationship. It's possible. Maybe it, fear, it frightens you. Well, I want to conclude our time by reading this short poem that I believe puts our fears in proper perspective. It's four lines, five lines. It's called, Come to the Edge. Come to the edge, God said. We can't. We're afraid the people responded. Come to the edge, God said. We can't. We will fall. The people responded. Come to the edge, God said. And so they came. And God pushed them. And they flew. Eventually, we have to get out of the nest. Eventually, we have to come to the edge. And the only fear that we have in falling is if we try to do it in a man-centered, fleshly way when we make disciples. But if we, we truly trust him as, as the source for the mission, acknowledging him as the source of the mission, as we, as we trust in him for the provisions for the mission, that's what's going to allow us to move forward in confidence with the mission, just as God intends. Just as God intends. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father of grace and mercy, we bow our heads right now just to thank you again for your word. Thank you for the, the, the mission that we have seen on display and that you have allowed our hearts to be captured, how Jesus faithfully discipled and grew the apostles. We pray, Father, that um, we would continue to acknowledge you as the source of our mission while we're on, on this earth, that you want us to trust in you for every single provision. And we thank you for the provision of Christ provision of the gospel that grants people access to his ultimate power, his authority in their lives that frees and liberates and rescues. And Lord, we're just so blessed as a church family to be at a place where we get to see these truths from your scriptures with such clarity. Thank you for blessing us. We ask as we turn our attention towards second hour as Joshua Lee comes up, that you would bless him in helping us to see what it looks like in discipleship being made, the gospel making progress in Malaysia. Encourage us. I pray, Father, that you would help us all to overcome our fears, whatever it is that might cause us to doubt that we would 
like the birds of the air, take that step of faith out of the nest, that we would come to the edge and that we would be willing to jump full steam into a life of discipleship and making our lives count. Thank you for this time as a church family. We give you all thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.